0: this Lord's day in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord Greetings. God is able to save men from the uttermost amen his arm is not weak his mercy does not ever fall short the Bible tells us it's new every morning the weakness of men does not impede his will God will have all of his holy will amen amen Jesus said that he would build his church and he would make sure that there were building blocks for this building. It's not a matter of will there be a church. It's a matter of who will be part of the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the living God. Amen? Amen. David's saying of God's mercies that make this possible for the likes of you and me. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 86 as God calls his people to worship today. Bow down thine ear, David wrote. O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou my God, save thy servant that trust in thee. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy unto all that call upon thee. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great and dost wondrous things, and thou art God alone. Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all of my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. For great is thy mercy toward me, for thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. O God, the proud are risen against me and the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul and have not set thee before them. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy. O turn unto me, O God. Turn unto me and give thy strength unto thy servant and save the son of thine handmaiden. Show me a token for good that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed because thou, Lord, has in me and comforted me. Let us pray. Lord, we're so glad that you have given us yet another day to gather together as your people. We're excited that little William Everett Narwhal will come to the waters of baptism today. Lord, that you will put your sign and seal upon him as your child. Lord, by faith we believe that you have already done these things in his heart with a circumcision not made with hands. Lord, as this happens today, may we realize that we are all babes come to you, ignorant, powerless, and longing for your strength, Lord, and your wisdom. Feed us from heaven, for we hunger and thirst after righteousness, Lord. Change us as we come Together today, as your people, change us that we might be more like you. In Christ's name, we pray. And all the church said, "Amen." Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Amen. I'm going to read to you my text for you today from the book of Luke, chapter twenty-three starting in verse 32 as I told you before my sermon is called thieves in paradise Luke chapter 23 starting in verse 32 says this and there were also two other malefactors led with Jesus to be put to death and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary there they crucified him and the malefactors one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. (laughs) And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors, which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we come to your word every week and we come longing not to hear something interesting or novel. But we come because we want to hear you. We want you to speak to us. We want you to touch our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would light up your word, that you would illuminate it, that we might understand it, that we might see something that you would speak to our church right now, here today, something that would change us. Something that would draw us nearer to you, Lord. Something that would make us long to be indeed with you in paradise. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said amen. You may be seated. The story of the two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus is yet another of the many narratives recorded by all four gospel writers. And it is so full of beauty. In truth, my sermon, as I said, called "Thieves in Paradise." Note the plural thieves. Everybody say thieves. thieves. That little s on the end, thieves. For there are indeed thieves in paradise this very day, and we here will join them and add to their number when we too pass through the gates of pearl. Amen. As we heard today in our New Testament reading from First Corinthians chapter six. Verses 9 through 11, Paul reminded the Corinthians that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? That's the bad news. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you that's more bad news isn't it Becky that's bad news people like that can't go to heaven on their own that's bad all of us no doubt fit under one of the above categories and if it we're not sure there may be multiple of them, but note the word Paul used here, were. I say were. Such were some of you. He continued with some very, very good news for us today. That you are washed. You are sanctified. You're made holy. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Thieves though we be, we will be thieves in paradise one day that's some good news i hope it fills your heart with gladness today to know that whatever the world labels you what either what even you label yourself that in the end what the label that god places upon your life will be the one that matters when you come before him amen by god's grace this thief will join all the other thieves this one right here in paradise I would assert among the other things that I will assert today that it was by no mere chance that Jesus was crucified with two men. Two equally guilty men. Two equally unjust men. Two men who not only sinned throughout their lives and they were paying justly for their crimes that day on Golgotha's hill, but two men who both reviled the Lord of glory even as he hung on the cross I can think of fewer bad things that a man can do but the Lord of glory the son of God hanging on the cross there to save the world and this man was guilty of going yeah you think you're somebody but you're not why don't you save us if you you think you can you're not who you say you are This man that Jesus saved that day, he did that too. Because he started off his time on the cross unregenerate, faithless, and ungodly. But something happened to that man that day that has happened to every one of us and may happen to lots of people we know in our lifetime. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four tell us about these malfactors, but Luke tells us the most. Matthew and Mark both tell us the nature of their crimes when they are called thieves. The Greek word used here by the gospel writers carries a little bit more weight to it than thief. When I think of the word thief, Tim, I think of a a pickpocket or maybe a shoplifter or someone that, you know, is a little sneaky and might take this or that. We've got a few thieves in my house. I saw Heath smile back there. Heath and me, we've got the same we got the same kind of things at our my house as he does at his house, don't we? don't we? But these men were not garden variety pickpockets or shoplifters, they were bandits, they were brigands, marauders, highwaymen. These two men were not unlike those who ambushed the man in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter ten. Walking on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, this man, we remember, was beaten. He was stripped. He was robbed. Doesn't that sound familiar? What did they do to Jesus? They beat him. They robbed him. They stripped him and they did what? They left him for dead. That's what these men were. You see, the Greek word used for the men here, these thieves, it wasn't pickpocket. These were highwaymen. These were robbers. These were the kind of men who took pleasure in other people's pain, who waited in the bushes, and while a family was on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Holy Week, they would wait, and if no one was looking, they would come out and slam them on the head and rip their clothes off and leave them naked laying in the road. That's what these men were. It doesn't say they were little stealers of stuff. They were this variety of evil these men were low lives. they were bottom-of-the-barrel men with no regard for others. All four accounts of the story of these thieves are different, but there's one thing that all four of the writers have in common, that there were two of them, and that they were crucified on the right and on the left. You know, I don't think God's Word has anything in it, Luke, that's there just for no reason. I mean when you know we hear that he was crucified the placement of these men or if Jesus was in a line of 20 or whatever it was whatever it was going to be every little thing that God did Stephen was marked of God for a point for us to see and there were two of them and they were on the right and on the left it doesn't tell us in any of the other accounts which one in any of the accounts which one was on which side But I think by the end of this sermon that we will all think that we know just exactly which thief was on which side and which thief was on the other. Let me read for you what Matthew and Mark tells about these men before we go to our text here in Luke. I'll end with what John tells us because he adds something to the narrative that I believe is certainly very valuable for us. Matthew 27, 38 says, Then there were two thieves crucified with Him. One on the right hand and the other on the left. And they passed by and they reviled Him, wagging their heads. Note it says there were two that these were thieves and that they were on the right side and on the left. That they passed by and reviled the Lord, wagging their heads. And what did they say? They said, Thou that destroyed the temple and builds it in three days. They were referring to words Jesus had said. That we read and recorded in Matthew chapter twenty-four. Oh, you're going to destroy it and build it up in three days. They, they were there. They heard him preach and talk, and they're throwing his words in his face. Can you imagine the gall of this? They weren't those who had never heard the word of God. They'd heard it. They'd heard it spoken from Jesus' lips. They were there when he spoke or heard about it. Save yourself, they said. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocked him and the scribes and the elders. He saved others, but himself he cannot save. They weren't denying that he hadn't raised Lazarus from the dead, that he hadn't made people walk, that he hadn't delivered the the demons, uh, cast the demons out, and delivered the maniac of Gadara. He saved others, but he can't even save himself. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from that cross, and we will believe him then. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Note verse 44 The thieves also that were with him, crucified with him, cast these same things into his teeth. What a sin. Could you imagine having that on your record? Mocking the Savior of the world while you're dying. I mean, Paul, can you get any worse than that? These two men joined in the revelry of the mocking, the reviling, the taunting, casting it, as it says, into the teeth of Jesus. They didn't just repeat it. They yelled it. They screamed it into his face. We call that getting in your face, right? Their lives were so filled with evil and they were so used to mocking suffering and no doubt they laughed at those that struck on the head. Those they stripped. Those they beat and robbed and left for dead. And here they were. What was happening to them was what they had been doing to men all their lives. Right? And that what they do with you and they crucify you. They beat you. They strip you. And then they leave you for dead. And what they had been doing to people all their lives was being done to them. And even while it was being done to them, Kenny, they were yelling still in the midst of this, still no fear of God whatsoever. Even their own torments of crucifixion, nothing induced them to consider their impending judgment from God. And see, you think, oh, well, these were ignorant Gentiles. No, they were not. These These were by every historical account, all the details. These were Jews. Why? Well, they, they knew the word paradise. They knew the word Christ which they used. They were casting into His face things that Jesus said. These people, Romans, weren't. they didn't crucify Romans like this unless they were slaves. This is what man is. He's dead in his trespasses and sin. He does not seek after God. He's past feeling compassion for anybody himself. Man is totally depraved without hope, without the touch of God to enliven his faith. Nothing he sees, nothing he hears, nothing that happens to him can change his state. Nothing less than the enlivening touch of God himself. Years ago, before I understood this, I used to come away from time with my relatives, grieved that they had not come to God while we were together on vacation or we were together at Thanksgiving or Christmas. And I wondered, what have I done that I didn't show Jesus? What words didn't I say? And Stephen, it grieved me. I was like sick to my stomach. I couldn't hardly be with my relatives. I would go away wondering why they couldn't be saved. I understand why. Now, not that I still don't want to tell them the truth, but... I don't expect that. I don't feel that, you know, somehow I'm going to make this happen. And God reminded me of this one time. He said, you know, Jesus was on the cross. He died the perfect death. He said the perfect words. He reacted in the perfect way. He had the perfect responses. And he did all of this. And yet the people looking on did not come to him. In fact, there were two closer to him than anyone on earth. And and the man that was so close that watched his every facial expression, who saw his perfect. Death, who saw his perfect response, who heard his perfect words, refused to know God. It kind of takes the pressure off of your perfection. Mark chapter 16 verse 27 says, these very simple words, this is all that Mark records. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on the right hand and the other on the left. At a bare minimum we still get that there were two That they were low down bandit. Robert said that he was crucified in the middle of them and that each one was on his right or left. Now let's go to Luke chapter 23. Verse 32, there were two other malfactors led with him to be put to death. The word malfactor here in Luke is consistent with the word used by Matthew and Mark, but it's more general. It is a term for a criminal, but it is a term for a bad criminal, a nasty, recalcitrant, low down criminal person, someone who no doubt may have been guilty of many things that n- they, you would never find out about. Verse 33, when they came to the place which is called Calvary there they crucified him and the malefactors one on the right hand and the other on the left. Can you see this consistent theme at every one of them? Want, you know God has in His word in Matthew, He has in his word in Mark, He has in his word in Luke and you'll see later in John that there's one on the right and there's one on the left. Are you starting to see something that God is trying to show us? we'll get to it note that luke includes the detail of where jesus was on the right and the left this reminds me of the story of matthew chapter 20 and mark chapter 10 where james and john the sons of Zebedee, came with their mother do you remember this annie and he said you know what we want i want my sons to be on the right and on the left and one one says the boy said it the other says the mother said it obviously they were come these mama's boys were bringing their mom and they wanted to make sure they could be on the right and the left and jesus said "Oh." and they said we want to be when you come into your kingdom when you're the king of the jews when you're the king of israel i want to be right on your right and on your left and jesus said oh i don't think you know what you're asking but indeed you will suffer but as but as far as who goes on my right and my left that is not mine to give You know, Jesus, when He came into His kingdom here, King of the Jews, written over His head. There was a man on the right and a man on the left, and it wasn't James and John. Here, these two men, in a sense, are in that place. The inscription, King of the Jews placed over Jesus' head. Now, verse 33, when they were coming to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him. The malefactors, one on the right, one on the left. Then they said, Jesus said these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted His raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. The rulers with them derided Him, saying, He saved others. Let Him save Himself if He be the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers mocked Him, saying, Coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, if thou be the king. Can you keep this saying, if if thou be the king. If thou be. We'll get to this later, but do you you remember the first time this was said to Jesus? If thou be the son of God. If thou be the Christ. And it's coming over and over. It's what the priests say. It's what the Roman soldiers say. It's what these thieves say. If, if, if thou be, if thou be. Up to this point in the story of the crucifixion, our Lord Jesus is cast down. He is mocked universally maligned. Yet in all of this, he did not open his mouth against them who were doing these things. Not even those four soldiers we talked about last week who nailed his hands and feet. How hard would have been, Andy, to not say something as they took a nail and they shoved it through the wrist of your hand to not... You're right, you know... To go, what are you doing? Don't do that to me. What would it be like to not do that? But yet he didn't. To not scream out in pain against those afflicting him. Not only did he not speak against his executioners, he spoke to God on their behalf. Forgive them. Yet in these moments when the light of the truth and the power shone bright is still the guilty man hanging on the cross next to him continued to rail against him. Verse 39, one of the malefactors which was hanged railed on him saying, if thou be Christ. This wasn't the first time Jesus had heard these words when he began his public ministry with a 40 days fast in the wilderness. Satan met him there. And if you remind, remember what he said to him two times, if... You be the Christ. Why don't you make these bread? Why don't you make stone out of these bread? If thou be the Christ, why don't you throw yourself down off of the top of the temple here and God will save you, right? Here the devil was using these men to speak to him these same words. If if these men spoke the words of his father the devil while Christ held firm to the words of his father. One of the malefactors which was hanging railed on him saying, If thou be the Christ, save himself, but the other. Everybody say this, but the other. This is where the story gets good. This is where the turn happens in the story. The whole world, you know, we talk about Athanasius. We say Athanasius contra mundum, right? Athanasius against the world. And Andy, it was just Jesus against the world. Even his mother and his, some of the disciples, they'd all, you know, Judas had betrayed him. Peter had abandoned him. Peter had denied him. The women were crying. No one was taking up for him. It was Jesus against the world, Steve. But then, but then they're bleeding beside him. But the other, I love it. Something happened in this man. He had been part of the crowd, Jason, up to this point. Up to this point, he joined in. But at this point, something happened in him, Luke, that changed him. Before that moment, these two men were the same. They were unified in their mocking, their faithlessness, their merciless, ungodly lives. But here, we see something has changed. The other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? I mean, had you seen any fear of God from this man before? Not yet. But in this moment, he's changed and he can't imagine how this guy can't have it. That's what happens to us, right? God changes us and we look at other people and go, what's what's wrong with them? Do they not fear God? The answer is no, they don't. They don't fear God. They couldn't live like that if they did. But now this man can't imagine what it would be like not to fear God when he had not feared God his whole life. Did he not fear God when people laid on the road and he laughed as he walked away with their stuff? Did he not fear God a moment earlier when he was casting into the teeth of Jesus all of these insults? Did he not? And yet here he is. Something's changed. He's different. What a change indeed up to this point. Neither of the men show any fear of God as they were being taken to their deaths. They continued in the path they had taken their whole lives, joining the soldiers in their jeers. But something happened to this man. Something powerful enough to change his heart. Something to cause him to want to stop himself. Something to make him want to stop the other man. To rebuke him publicly, to wonder why he had no fear. And as we will see, to confess his sins. And to call on Jesus with humility. To remember him. And to call him king. The other answer rebuked him saying... Don't you fear God seeing you're in the same condemnation and we indeed justly. He's, he's confessing his sins right here, right? He said we're dying and we ought to be dying because of what we've done. So he's confessing his sins. We've received the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing. He's confessing the righteousness of Christ. And then he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers him in a way that I I think that it ought to just blow our minds. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. What a remarkable event. What an incredible twist. What an unexpected turn in the story. Moments earlier, we have seen this man paired with his fellow bandit, a base robber worthy of death in this life, and in the next for his repugnant deeds, casting insults. Now we see this dead man of sin resurrect before our eyes. He comes to the defense of Christ, warns the sinner, confesses his faith, prays for mercy, and receives an invitation by Christ on that day to join him in paradise i mean who gets saved and goes to heaven the same day <laughs> what a great thing today oh what a vision our lord set before us in the story of these two men what disparity at clearness of doctrine man is dead in his trespasses and sin but by god's grace he can be quickened by god Once children of our father, the devil, once pushed in the wind of our destiny by the prince of the power of the air, now seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What happened here on this day is no different than what happens in every man. In one sense, yet can never happen to another like this. These two men crucified on the right and on the left of Jesus, unnamed that day, one of them will walk and talk with you and I in heaven, and we will learn his name. Amen? Now, who were these men? These men were most likely Jews, as I told you before. Ter- familiar with the terminology of the Bible. These men, we have no idea how old they were. What kind of lives they had been keeping. Some One commentator suggested that when he was trying to answer the question of whether people can be saved who are baptized or not. Said, I bet he was baptized by John because many of the Jews Went out into the wilderness and were baptized. And he lived in the area. And so maybe he, that's how he got to go to heaven, because he got baptized by them. I think that's a little stretch. What do you think? I doubt that this was one of John's disciples. I think the Bible would have been clear had he done that. They knew they were guilty and they were about to die. Yet in the midst of this long, drawn-out torture, this execution, which ended up literally to be a mercy. You know, this was something, Andy, that kind of struck me. You know, if they had been killed by hanging or by a blow of a sword instantly, they would have had no opportunity. Their time would have been expired. But yet here, the very torture of crucifixion is the mercy of God for this man because it gives him a few more minutes. And in the midst of these sufferings, God changed His life and saved him. The horrible means of death provided them the extra time on earth, enough time for salvation to come to this poor thief as it had to Zacchaeus. God works in mysterious ways, does he not? I believe this is a story of God's unsearchable mercy, a story of a saving power, a story that teaches us that God saves men in any circumstance, at any time, regardless of how evil they have been their entire lives. No situation too desperate, no time too late, no favorable conditions are needed. It is God from beginning to end and nothing is too hard for God. I'm gonna give you a little bit of Charles Spurgeon. You guys wanna hear a little bit of what he said about it? In 1881 at Metropolitan Tabernacle, Spurgeon said this. He said, assuredly, nobody preached a sermon to this man. No evangelistic address was delivered at the foot of the cross and no meeting was held for special prayer on this man's account. He does not even seem to have had an instruction or an invitation or an expostulation addressed to him and yet this man became a sincere and accepted believer in the Lord Christ. Sometimes I think we think it takes a little bit more from us than it really does. God can save him. God will save them. And God is saving men every single day. We don't know exactly what converted the dying man, but this was indeed a deathbed conversion. And he's been talking to his neighbor who was on the verge of his last days on this earth. The 11th hour worker in the kingdom like Jesus taught about that would receive the same wages even though he worked but yet a few hours Fewer men probably lived a shorter life than this man, right? Here he was. He'd come to the Lord. He's on the cross. And a few hours later, after he sat in the darkness that was cast upon the earth, right? That was his entire life that he got to live for God. He was a last hour worker. And as we'll see though, he had some work to do still yet. We'll talk about it in John 19. We know the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and we know for sure that this man did hear the Word of God. Every word uttered by our Savior was the Word of God. Again and again, he quoted from the Psalms as he hung there on the tree. We know that Jesus was the light to this man and the whole world when he reviled not those that were wagging their heads and taunting him that day. And we know there was a stark difference between what the thieves saw in themselves and in other men. When they were tied to and nailed to their crosses, cursing, hate and certain spewed out of them as the hammer came down and their blood began to flow. Neither of these men had ever seen a man like Jesus. Who could he be? He was here to die like one of them, yet none of them had anyone to come and weep for them. Who was this man that people were weeping at his death? Remember, Jesus looked and said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but for your children. Spurgeon adds this, and he says, perhaps the man was struck with wonder when he came to think in his death pains of the singular look of pity, which Jesus cast on the women and on the self forgetfulness, which gleamed from his eyes. He was smitten with a strange relenting. It was as if an angel had crossed his path and opened his eyes to a new world. To a new form of manhood. The likes of which he had never seen. Oh people of God. Would it be. If people saw our lives like this. And turned to him for salvation. There's a reason for holy living. Right here. If there's never been another. Folks if the reason for our holy living. Was this. I think our holy living wouldn't be. Wouldn't turn to our own pride. Amen but if we longed for the people to really to see Jesus so that they might come to him, that'd be a good reason to live holy. Amen? As this man must have thought, who could he be? What must he be? I pray they look on us as we carry our crosses. And the world asks the same question, who could they be? Surely that march along the road to Golgotha's hill was the first part of the sermon which God preached to both of these thieves that day, but it was only heard by one of them. Spurgeon said it this way, it was preached to many others who did not regard its teaching, but upon this man and by God's special grace, it had a softening effect. When he came to think of it and consider it, was it not likely the convincing means of grace when he saw the Savior surrounded by the Roman soldiery, when he saw the executioners bring forth the hammers and the nails and lay them down upon his back and drive the nails into his hands and crucified this criminal, wasn't he startled and astonished as he heard him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This week as I was reading about this and listening to Jesus, it it caused me to recoil from some of the imprecatory prayers that we utter. Because I don't remember Jesus uttering any such prayers like this. That was a petition, Spurgeon said, like which we have never heard or even dreamed of, from whose lips... Could it come but from the lips of a divine being? Such a loving and forgiving godlike prayer proved him to be the Messiah. Who else had ever prayed this way? Spurgeon said, David and the kings of Israel certainly never prayed like this. In all honesty and heartiness, they imprecated the wrath of God upon all their enemies when Jesus said to love them, to do good to them, to forgive them, and to pray for them, not that God would kill them, but that he would save them. Elijah himself would not have prayed in that fashion. Rather, he would have called down fire from heaven on the centurion and his company. What Jesus was doing that way was a new and strange sound. And I don't suppose that this man appreciated it to the full, but I can well believe that it deeply impressed him and made him feel that his fellow sufferer, that there was a great mystery of godliness about him. When his cross was lifted up and the faith, hanging on the cross, looked around, I suppose, he could see that inscription written above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. If so, then that writing was his little Bible that day, his little New Testament, Spurgeon wrote. And he interpreted it by what he had already known from the Old Testament. <laughs> Only God could save a man in circumstances like this, right? I mean, Christina, you got, you're looking at me. Your eyes are open up and you're thinking, are you imagining this? Could you imagine? This is how you're going to come to God. I can't even imagine it. Today we worry that people won't come to church or to God if the temperature isn't just right. If we don't provide a cup holder for their Starbucks or even offer the coffee within our church walls. This man was by no means comfortable or undistracted. He was not overcome by the holy atmosphere of a cathedral or the bright lights of a stadium like sanctuary. The music was not his kind of music. It was the sound, uh, his melody was the sound of insults and grunts and moans, some of them coming from himself. He did not hear Just As I Am played slowly and softly over and over again while eloquent speakers spun the stories of sinners lost nope despite the smoke of his own pain despite the fog of his own pain despite the obvious doubts the devil could have placed in his ears this man, this weakening, mocked, bleeding and dying man this powerless so called savior being nailed to him naked just like he was the devil must have said he can't save you He can't even save himself. Could you imagine this? You have to have faith in Jesus and Jesus is bleeding and dying next to you. It would be a little hard to believe in him as the Savior, would it not? I mean, forget the fact that he's wrapped with pain and bleeding himself and suffering and everyone's abandoning him. This man is looking to Jesus for salvation. I'm telling you, I believe God is giving us a picture of the most hopeless man to ever be saved is saved. Right here, right then, in the worst situation from the worst history in his life is so completely impossible, but Jesus shows us it's not impossible. I can save a man whose arms are pinned to the cross that can never be lifted to praise me. I can save a man who's stuck to a cross and he can't come down to the waters of baptism or walk an altar to come down and bow his knees for repentance if he could save a man like that who could he save that you know I know we meet some of our relatives we spend time with them and we wonder how could they ever be saved somehow by the divine power of God Jason through all this he saw the light of the truth beside him you know why Because God had given him eyes to see and there was no unseeing what he was seeing. God had given him ears to hear and now every word uttered by Jesus was the word of God for him. Nothing stopped this man that day and it did not stop God from saving him either. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy on and he hardens whom he hardens. I could be preaching about the man on the other side that saw it all. And didn't listen. But today we're talking about the one. I believe. That was on Jesus' right. What a glorious picture God has given us today. Of a man who was lost all of his life. Only to be saved hours before his death. In the midst of his crucifixion. For him it could have been said. First what Paul later said of himself. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And here he was. He never said it. He didn't have to say it, right? He was literally crucified with Christ and dying, but in the midst of his death, he was living. If God can save a man such as that in this late hour and in this impossible circumstances, he can. How can we lose hope for anyone? Oh, that men would be saved and that we would hope for their salvation. Oh, that we would never stop speaking truth into their ears and denying the darkness that seems to claim them. Let me read John 19 as I'm winding down for you here. John nineteen seventeen. He bearing the cross went forth to a place which is called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Golgotha. Wherefore they crucified Him and two other men with Him on either side of Him and Jesus in the middle. Down to verse 31. The Jews therefore because it was the preparation day. That the body should not remain upon the cross. All the Sabbath. They hear these Jews. They were so pious. They wanted to not break the Sabbath. So instead they decide to take an iron bar. Or a hammer. And bust the two. Smaller bones in the leg. Below the knee. The tibia and the fibia. Smash it. Because it was the Sabbath, of course. That would honor the Lord, wouldn't it? Sometimes our religion is so hypocritical and insane. We don't want to break the Sabbath. So let's smash these men's legs. Oh, have mercy on us. For the Sabbath was a high day. It was an important day to be honored of God. So let's break these men's legs. Verse 32, they, then came the soldiers... And they broke the legs of the first man, and then of the other, which was crucified with him. This thief had borne pain in his life, pain that he had earned that, and on that day, but now he was born again. And as he hung in the darkness, alive in the light of his new faith, God would grant him the opportunity to join the ranks of those who shared in the sufferings of Christ. Paul told the Romans that those that shared in the sufferings of Christ would share in his glory. And each blow of the hammer and of the iron bar upon his legs was guaranteeing him that. Jesus had died there between him. The one he was trusting was dead and he was still alive on either side. Second Timothy 2.12 says that though that suffer with him will one day reign with him and his suffering would earn him great gain where he was headed. In his life, just like many people that don't know God, their suffering does nothing for them. But even the Christian, our sufferings, gain for us. Amen. They that suffer will reign with him. They that suffer with him will share in his glory. Kind of makes you hope to suffer a little bit. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. I almost hate to mar this message with this truth, but you know there are some that decry the salvation of the thief on the cross, and they call it less than salvation. I remember growing up that it says, it doesn't say he goes to heaven, he only goes to paradise. Because we know he didn't speak in tongues and we know he didn't get baptized. And so God had a little special spot for him for a little while, but he eventually was gonna have to make his way to hell. Oh, merciful heavens. They say this to bolster their argument of baptismal regeneration as if somehow God could not truly save a man who could never make it to water. I say that these men have dark and narrow minds for such theological confusion, but if I'm wrong, though, about this, if maybe I'm wrong, maybe their theology is just right, I see no reason why the water that flowed from the side of Jesus could not have washed over this man or splattered on him in some way. His blood could not have touched him I won't try to argue this, but, you know, they say they believe and you know, people love to study things they don't know anything about. But when they pierce his side, they believe it was Jesus's right side. That would be the proper place to do it to affect what happened medically. And as you'll see here, my closing reading, I have a good reason to believe that this man might have been on the right side of Jesus. Matthew 25, I'll close with this as we contemplate thieves in paradise. Jesus said these things, says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon His throne in glory. And before Him shall be gathered all the nations, and He shall separate them one from the other. As a shepherd devised a sheep from the goats, and He shall put the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left then shall the king say unto them in his right hand come ye blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world isn't that kind of what jesus said to that man come he says today you'll be with me in paradise let us pray Lord, you know, even as we pray, that man is with you now in heaven, probably listening to my sermon. If he can do that, I don't know how all of it works, but I know you can hear it. Lord, you can also see the great longing in my heart to be in paradise with you and with him. And the great joy I have to know that sinners are going to be there. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, not angels, not principalities, not powers, not things in the past or things to come. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Lord, I believe that you have saved me and that you will keep me. And for this I rejoice today. And I long to live a life that shows the light of your gospel to men. I long to speak words that would cause faith to spring forth in others, O God. And for this reason, we keep walking and talking every day. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, amen. Amen.